I really think, and I'm not going to back down off of this, we put out 95-plus percent of our rock and fires, fire out one, two, three, maybe even four windows. We send the first two rigs straight to the scene, and we hit it hard. We hit it fast. And the fire service really needs to look to embrace rapid water. From Los Angeles, this is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Code 3 features interviews with leading members of the fire service, discussing firefighting strategy, tactics, and other topics you need to know more about. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thanks for joining me on another edition of Code 3. You are listening to the show for and about firefighters. Let's get started. With today's rapid fire growth, it's more important than ever before to get water on the fire as fast as possible. Flashovers, for example, can occur in just minutes now. That's a change from 20 years ago or more. But another factor these days works against us, and that's limited staffing. Decisions about what jobs get done first need to be based on that reality. My guest today says getting water on the fire is the primary goal, even more than search and rescue. I'm pleased to have Kurt Isaacson back on Code 3 today. He's currently a battalion chief for Escambia County Fire Rescue in Florida, where he's worked for the last 19 years. Before that, he was at the Pensacola Fire Department for nine years. If you've missed seeing Kurt speak at a live conference, you've missed a lot. He's a lot of fun to watch, and you'll learn a thing or two. He also owns County Fire Tactics. And Kurt Isaacson joins me now. Welcome back to Code 3. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate you having me back for a second time. It's good to have you. So, it seems obvious that applying water to a fire is important, but are there some fire companies that don't seem to be in a hurry to get the water on a fire? Guaranteed, you know, different organizations have their, their, their culture or the, you know, their past practices, if you will, and it's not that they're not a good fire department or a great fire department, they just Historically, they felt that whether it be putting a, more of an emphasis on vertical ventilation or searching or, or taking windows or whatever, you know, so many times we just we do what's passed on to us. We do what we've done and what seems to be successful. Not that it's not successful, but, you know, a lot of times everything's relative. What's cold in Detroit, Michigan is different than what's cold in Miami, Florida. So, but for me, just being in multiple different types and sizes of fire departments from an urban environment all the way to a rural environment. There is one thing that transcends all staffing levels, all size organizations or demographics or, or, or the protection, you know, your, your first 10 district is that there's no doubt that water on the fire saves more lives than any other fire ground tactic because today's uh, building construction, today's fire behavior, and the fact that the fire prevention message is to close your door well, if we're telling somebody to close their door to protect them from the heat, smoke, and product combustion, then it's going to be that much more important for the American Fire Service or any fire service around the, the world to rapidly apply water to control that fire before it burns through that door to be 
encourage the civilians to close when they doze at night. So we definitely need to, you know, not the fire phones are not doing a great job. They are, but we can always do better. There's a saying goes back decades and decades that the initial stretch to tack line saves more lives than any other fire ground function. That's nothing to do. That's been around a long time, but truly making sure that firefighters, organizations, and training divisions make that a top priority that, you know, we as the fire service, we as firefighters, regardless of rank, are very good at stretching and operating hose lines and then getting that water on the fire because, you know, I've said it not only in articles, but when I speak around the country is water creates and maintains survivable space. If somebody's trapped in a bedroom and the entire living room, dining room, whether it be a one-story or a two-story, if we can extinguish that fire and cool it down, they're liable to open the door and just walk right through the burned-out area, just no different than what we call the black area in a wildland fire, a forest fire, a brush fire. We definitely understand, and, you know, there's been a huge debate based on UL, and UL's done some phenomenal research that definitely applies to today's fire service and understanding that, yes, we'd like to get a hose line in the building, get it between the fire and the trapped oxygen, between the, what's burning and what's not burning, but if we can't do that based on staffing, based on fire ground conditions, the amount of fire, maybe hoarding conditions and clutter, then, then the next best thing is going to be water from anywhere. I mean, some water is better than no water. Uh, obviously, we want enough water that it overwhelms the BTUs. And that's where the whole thing that I, that I talked about last time when I was on here is the whole gallons per second. You know, five-gallon bucket on a cigarette, not, not the five-gallon bucket with a little bitty, you know, pencil hole in the bottom that's pissing on the fire and, it's the vaporizing. We don't want premature vaporization. We want water or solid fuels. And that goes back to Andy Fredericks and even before him that we need that cooling of solid fuels. And, you know, so I, I think that we're, we're slowly getting there on a more broad brush basis, if you will, with a fire service and understanding that water is the foundation of fire extinction. And it will be the rest of my career. I don't see any time in the future that water is going to be replaced with something else to extinguish structural fires. Now, I've seen you speak about putting out fires with one booster tank full of water. Do firefighters typically think it takes more water than it really does to get a fire out? Guaranteed, and I think that just comes back to, once again, the culture of the fire service. And what we know, I don't think the fire service has ever really been challenged or put it on the forefront of their brain that, when they go to fires to stop and make hey, how much water that fire takes to extinguish. And for my career, dating back a long time, I've always looked at a fire and truly thought about how much water it's sucking up. The more I did that, the more I realized that even our good rocking private dwelling fires, where there's one, two, three rooms of fire, a booster tank knocks it out. And, and guaranteed, I say it when I teach the gallons per second, I would love to have a hydrant at every fire, a hydrant of front yard, if you will. But, the reality is we don't always have that. And I like to refer to the UL legacy fire behavior and the modern fire base. You know, uh, the legacy was, for easy numbers, 30 minutes to flash over, and it was really not a very impressive flash over. You know, fires in the 60s and maybe the 70s. And now, in, in, a, in a controlled environment, it is. It's science, but it's still relative. Today's fire ground, we're talking about three minutes and 40 seconds from ignition to flash over of a standard living room, and that should make the fire service wake up and understand that that if you're riding with a three-person engine company, that most likely most of the time at a working fire in a private dwelling, the second engine needs to go to the scene. It doesn't need to be stopping 
three, four, five hundred feet down the street and laying a supply line, you need three more people to back up the first three people. So now you at least got six, hopefully eight if you're riding four and four. In some place, it may be two and two. So now you only have four, but you got two pumps, you got two tanks of water. And now when I just deal with 750 gallons, we have 1,500 gallons of water. And I really think, and I'm not going to back down off of this. I mean, as a, as a you know, six, over 16 years as a battalion chief in a very busy metro county fire department, we put out 95-plus percent of our rock and fires, fire out one, two, three, maybe even four windows. We send the first two rigs straight to the scene, and we call it the booster backup. And we hit it hard, we hit it fast, and we back it up with a second tank, a second, you know, apparatus of people. And the fire service really needs to look to embrace and rapid water. You know, even in the FDNY, they had a rig on one of the rigs. I can't remember what it was, you know, 58 engine. On their engine, it said it was called rapid water. And rapid water is going to save lives. My house is on fire, and, and, and the department that protects me, I wouldn't want the second engine stopping at a hydrant. I want to come in straight to the scene. So they have enough people to force the door, get a line in the building, put water on the fire, conduct the primary search within a survivable time frame. So there, there's no doubt that we, the fire service, have to, to dive deeper into what, what will your tank of water you know, suppress, whether it be a 500-gallon, 750, or 1,000. And then some other stuff in UL. And I'm a, you know, I was a part of the coordinated fire attack panel, which was very phenomenal just to, to sit on that and the work that the people on the panel did, the work that UL did, and it, the biggest takeaway I took from it is on top of, you know, my beliefs already, it just reinforced that fast, rapid water will extinguish more fire than we've realized. And the longer I do this, the more I do it, the more I realize we can put out more fire than I even thought in the past, you know, with 500, 750, 1,000 gallons. If we're applying it in a proper amount, in a proper period of time to the speed of the fire, we're not placing the upper fire gases, we're putting it where it's surviving, that fire stream surviving that thermal, that heat column, and getting to the burning solid fuels to drop it below the combustion temperature or ignition temperature, if you will, and just basic simple terms. Firefighters don't have to understand megawatts and BTUs and all that. Well, they just need to be, what they really need to understand is just the basics of apply as much water as you can with your staffing, with your capabilities, to the fire, and you're going to win most of the time. You're going to, as, as some people call it, winning with water. Maybe Bart's even got a sticker out there that, you know, water always wins, and it does. Water wins when we understand how and when to use it and what amount to use it in. I'll be back with more right after this. It may be the most important, most impactful, and most moving podcast about firefighters ever. It's True Fire. It's about firefighters who have made the ultimate sacrifice while trying to save lives and property. This is a six-episode first season, and I've already produced a pilot episode. You can hear it at truefirepodcast.com. You'll find it to be a docudrama like none you've heard before. Now it's up to you. In order to produce the rest of the season, I've launched a Kickstarter funding campaign. It's a massive job to create this series much more than Code 3, and it takes resources. So please go to truefirepodcast.com and click on the Kickstarter link to help me reach my goal by July 13th. 
It's an all or nothing deal, so I'm counting on you to make this happen. Let's honor these men and women and make sure the world never forgets their sacrifice. Limited staffing is a reality in a lot of departments. So what happens when they want to search first? Well, I mean, there are times, I mean, if you pull up and, you know, you, you, you reduce on staffing and, you know, let's just say you pull up in that, in that rural or suburban community that doesn't have a way or doesn't choose to fund or, or staff a rig app, you know, properly, a lot of places are pulling up with two people on a rig. If you pull up and you've got a large amount of fire, and you've got a known location of trapped occupants in a bedroom, whether it be a single story or a two story, there are times that you're going to go for that search of a water application because life does become a full property. But in my experiences, more times than not, when we go to an occupied working fire with entrapment, we don't know the exact location of the victim. You know, whether it's two o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the afternoon, they could be on the couch, they could woke up, they could be in the hallway, they could be in the living room. At the end of the day, it sucks, but I've been to a large number of civilian fire fatalities and you know i've never done a graph or a spreadsheet but you know i'd say over half of them were not in their bed it's not those simple things we're just going to go to the window and always there so you know those factors of knowing having you know whether it be you just feel very confident they're there or uh, a civilian that made it out maybe a family member is saying hey johnny Susie, my mom my dad is in that window and you don't have enough people to fight the fire, extinguish the fire, control the fire in a survivable time frame, then maybe you're going to go for that search. But when we do go for search over water, it's got to be of, an, of a known location, a confirmed location of a trapped occupant. Because if we go for that grab and it's just a hypothetical thought, it's positive that we think they're in that location, and you miscalculate, you could be putting firefighters in jeopardy. Not that, you know, and I believe in it's worth the risk. Take risk. It's got to be controlled. It's got to be calculated. It's got to be a risk management thought process of what we're doing. So, you know, we're going to do search over water application. It's going to be based on that. we got pretty solid information that we know who we're going for, and we know pretty good idea of what location they're going to be in. And, and those are key things. But most of the time, most of the time, we're going to stretch and operate a hose line and apply water and back that water application up with an aggressive search operation. A lot of these smaller departments may not have exactly probies on the rig, but they may not have highly experienced firefighters. How does experience play into this? I mean, experience is very critical, you know, but, it, you, know, that, that's, you know, experience matters. I've, you know, I've been saying that, you know, since, since I was young. And the only people that say experience doesn't matter are the ones that don't have it. <laughs> but, you know, uh, there are people out there, it's not that they choose not to have experience. They just don't have the call load or the, the, the fire duty or the fire activity. So hopefully they're, they're, they're making the most out of their skill balance and ability, training, talking to others, you know, studying other fires, getting on the Internet, going to conferences. But there's no doubt the time compressed decision-making, that glass of seconds and minutes when you're in a fire ground, and you don't have experience, it definitely is going to slow down your thought process because you don't have that file cabinet to pull out those folders of previous fires for that split second or what I call firing on all cylinders. And they just have to make the most of it. You know, hopefully they've ran it through their head. They've, they've, you know, they've already had this fire, maybe not in the real world, but they've had it just sitting 
in a training room, a classroom, watching a video of somebody else's fire and said, you know, if I have this fire, this is what I'm going to do based on, you know, my response time, my, my staffing, my capabilities to the people that I work with. Um, but there, there really isn't, there really is not anything out there that replaces experience, but the ones that don't have it, it's not their fault. They just, they don't have it. So, you know, it's, 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 one, it's a struggle. There's no doubt the, the fire ground of today and across the board, a large number of fire departments respond to fires. It's a good chance the person on the nozzle is their first time push in on a working structure fire. Then you put a trapped occupant, it, it's a good chance it's the first time because thank God that we've got our, our, our civilian fire fatality numbers down, but a large number of people in the fire service, you know, they may only go to a few fires in their whole career where they actually have a trapped occupant. And, and, and that's a good thing, but now you, you, you've reduced the experience of being able to, you know, even though things are sped up, the brain can't slow it down in a positive way to, to do that critical time for press decision-making. So, you know, I could really talk on that in deep, but experience matters, and there's no place before it. We just do the best we can through living through other people's experiences, asking questions, and, you know, just like, you know, football. You're going to practice, you know, four or five days a week for, you know, 30 minutes, you know, or 60 minutes on on the field on a Saturday or Sunday, and those are things that we just have to maximize. I know you say firefighters have a front door bias. Why is that bad? Uh, because that's just where, you know, once again, that falls back on experience. The more fires you go to, more times than not, we go through the front door, and that is primarily, I mean, that's the first thing I was taught in a class listening to a nationally, you know, respected speaker is primarily we're going to go through the front door. It's what's the, the daytime space and the nighttime space. It's the door that oxygen more times than not come and go through. You know, unless they park in their garage, that's the door they use. So it is primarily the place we go, but when you go to a fire, you've got to be sizing up those other doors that may be a shorter, more rapid water application point of, of entry. So we have that bias that's based on our experiences, based on it's the one that's staring at us, the one that, that's right there when you, you pull up. It. We need to be sizing up. There's, there are, you know, there are those times and when we should not be using the front door, when we should be using that side door, that carport door, that garage door, that rear door, when those times that we're going to use those, it's critical. And it, it's one of those things that if we slow down our, and, and, and slow us fast, we're going to win a lot better. So um, as much as the front door is the primary place and, and, and we have a bias to just wanting to use it, when it's not the door, it's not the door, and we can really get jammed up on it. So we've got to, to be going to fires looking to confirm. So for me, it's like when you go, we're most likely going to use the front door, but make sure you size up the building through a 360, um, you know, whether it be walking around all the way around or just walking down one side of the rear built, and you're sizing up smoke, fire conditions, floor plan, you know, the layout of the fire. Uh, to make sure that you're just reassuring that, hey, the front door, once again, is the door. Um, but it, it, it should, to an experienced fire officer, it should be like a billboard sign when the front door is not the place to go. Now, we know you're a big, fast water guy. Where do you stand on the can? Do you think there's there's reason to use it, or do you just leave it on the rig? No, no, and, and our organization, you know, definitely if you're on the ladder, if you're a Later arriving apparatus, the can is a, is a big deal. We're going to come off the rig, definitely in an investigation mode. We actually had a, a successful grab uh, last year 
where the uh, ladder company made entry through the back door as the engine company was, was pushed in through the front door. The ladder company had a water can with them. They came through the back door. They were making a push, had a fire in the room. They, the, the can did not extinguish the fire, but it brought them some time as they made a grab. They removed the civilian, the occupant, rear door. Uh, or no, they actually passed them off to the engine company coming through the front door, and that can was their level of protection. And, and a can, you know, it's only two and a half gallons, but a water can is pretty impressive. But what I tell people is a can doesn't back up an attack line. An attack line backs up a can. So a can is you're coming off for that rapid getting in the building to buy protection. You know, more times than not, it's not necessarily on an occupied private floor. The water can's not necessarily for extinguishment. It's to buy yourself some time. It's to buy yourself a little bit of protection, whether a fire is going to the door, um, you're just trying to hold a, a fire back for a little bit. The, the, the can is definitely viable. And I would say I believe in the can more today than I, than I ever have. And if, if properly trained and, and you, you know, you've taken a class on a can or your organization has a training plan, the can is more than just the water for the fire. It's another tool for staying oriented in the surf. If you're using that can, say, to, you know, at a door, kind of like a simulated door chalk. So you're leaving it at a door and you go into a bedroom and it, it ends up being a Jack and Jill, two bedrooms and a bathroom. That can can be your orientation of, hey, this is a door that I came in. So there really is a lot to be to be valued from the use of a can during a search operation. But just for people real understanding, you know, it's going to give you about a minute worth of water application, give or take, if, if you're a department that doesn't put two and a half gallons. Some departments only put two gallons in just to reduce the weight. But I definitely think as the suburban fire service becomes more intelligent in urban fire tactics, that the water can will become more viable. Um, but we do have to be careful. We don't, we don't want our firefighters getting off into, you know, multiple room fire and thinking that, that that's going to work. And once again, a can is not connected to an apparatus. It's not going to provide you that direct line, you know, to the bump, to the pump but it may provide an orientation of that doorway, if you will. So I definitely can say today in 2020, I believe McCann more than I did just 10 years ago. That's a pretty big endorsement coming from you. All right, Kurt Isaacson, thanks for talking with me on Code 3 today. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me back. And I hope everybody out there is doing, with, uh, doing good with COVID-19. And we'll move forward and uh, we'll, we'll still be the, uh, a great country. And I hope everybody... Uh, is in going to enjoy their summer. Anyone who knows Kurt knows he's a big advocate of fast water. He's been known to point out that even one 500-gallon booster tank can put out a fire if you apply it properly. That's one way to get around the staffing shortfall. What do you think? I'd like to hear from you on this. You can leave your comments on our website at code3podcast.com slash fastwater. All one word, fast water. There are links to more resources there as well. Or if you're willing to put your voice in the show, I'd love to have it. Call me at 562-337-9902 and leave a voicemail. 562-337-9902. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more. I sure hope you'll join me. I'm Scott Orr. Until then, stay safe. To contact us, get more information on today's show, or to subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.